its infancy by people who really are more about framing messages than about understanding the phenomena. <laughs> Um, uh, burning their anus, as he put it, um, by slapping a hot iron to the feces. Welcome to another episode of Such That Cast. Today I'm talking to J.D. Trout, who is professor of philosophy and psychology at Loyola University, Chicago. Now, this is another episode in which the circumstances aren't entirely ideal. After having attended a conference on well-being in contemporary society at the University of Twente, I took the opportunity to interview JD on the train going to the Amsterdam airport. In addition to the background noise and a train compartment without air conditioning on a very sunny day, we were also constantly interrupted by this guy. So yeah, I had to do some creative editing in this episode so that explains any missing segues or abrupt interruptions. As a consequence, I was a little worried about how well this episode would turn out, but I'm actually very happy with it, and in many ways it exemplifies exactly what I want from a Such That Cast episode. A deeply fascinating and inspiring background story, interesting and often unpublished philosophical ideas, important visions of the nature of academia, chopped with some outrageous and hilarious stories. Add to this the soothing voice of an opera singer, and it makes for a conversation that I found very rewarding. I can only hope that some of that translates from a train compartment to your listening experience. Actually, let me ask, start with um, uh, your name. Yeah, I guess uh, I haven't really uh, divulged that to many people, but uh, uh, my uh, name is John Dwayne, uh, but everybody, ever since I was very small, called me JD. There were too many Johns in my family, and so too many heads would turn. Right. <laughs> we're going to get to your philosophy later on, but your early days sounds intriguing. Uh, you have a mother from a Sicilian background, right? Yeah. Who was also in the army? Uh, Navy, in the Navy. waves, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also you were on the Jersey coast, is that right? Yeah, time? I was on the east coast. I lived in uh, just north of Philadelphia in a town called Levittown, um, but my uh, grandfather had built a small bungalow on a little island called Long Beach Island just off the coast of New Jersey, so we were a few blocks from the ocean on one side, a few blocks from uh, the bay on the other, Barnegat Bay, and uh, it was a house that was heated by uh, a grill in the middle of the house, and it uh, got warm when people would, you know, uh, the house would get warm when people walked through and carried the warm air into another room, but there was there was a toilet inside, but no shower, right. um, so when you'd close up the house in November, you were in for some cold showers. Yeah, so I spent my days at the shore during the summer... Um, uh, mostly working small jobs or, uh, you know, I had uh, bought a small uh, cedar garvey with my brother when I was 12, and uh, we spent the summers clamming for $20 for four hours of work, really, if you got 500 clams, which we could do. Um, and 
when the tide was too high to clam, we would just drift along, and I would go fluke fishing or go for snapper blues or something. Um, but I worked at a little, um, you know, Mrs. Terry's kitchen kind of uh, uh, fried chicken place. But it was really where I grew up uh, shortly after that, where I had uh, unusual jobs. It was more rural and... You know, I worked packing corn for a while after school. I would do it for a few hours uh, when I was 14. When I was 16, I worked at a junkyard for a really long time, hauling auto parts and (laughs) doing some welding and, you know, learning how to drive a wrecker and worked as a pantry boy in some of the restaurants and the artist towns that were near where I lived. Those jobs are long behind me, but I remember them really well because... uh, you feel pretty lucky when you're not doing that anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> so with that setting, and if I may infer, uh, you don't have an academic family background? No, no. Uh, you know, for a lot of the philosophical questions that I was interested in when I was younger, that just wasn't the sort of thing that uh, a kid should think about in the scheme of things. So, right. um, you know, people didn't really indulge the interest if I asked questions about uh, God or something like that. It, we were a Catholic family, and there were certain kinds of doctrinal responses that were thought to be enough. Was it a strict Catholic uh, upbringing? Yeah, I went to church every Sunday, and I went, you know, completed confirmation. You know, I'm I'm an atheist now, but um, and I probably was then as well. <laughs> but religion always interested me. So uh, when I was uh, adopted, when I was 15, uh, my adoptive father, who was actually my uncle, uh, came from a family that was Jehovah's Witness, and I would go to Kingdom Hall with, and uh, go to those meetings. I went to fundamentalist meetings just to learn the Bible better. So did you have philosophical interest already then? Um, most of the philosophical interests that I had that surrounded issues of God had to do with more logical problems uh, about the nature of infinity and endlessness and, you know, issues like that. Um, Uh, And the philosophical interests that I had, apart from those sort of concerns, were just things that I had been introduced to incidentally by um, a fallen Jesuit who uh, taught a high school class of mine. So I would come home from school with books whose titles I just liked, and I'm sure I didn't understand the the work very well, but I felt like I was reading something very important. You know, so, uh, you know, one of the first books I read was The Leviathan. And I just liked the fact that it was on these big issues, you know, on the matter, form, and power of a commonwealth, both ecclesiastical and civil, you know. Um, And I remember reading um, Kant's uh, second critique, again, understanding very little of it, um, and then had the ordinary kind of uh, teenage... uh, um, interest in Nietzsche. So if somebody had told you back then that you would end up being a professor in philosophy, would you even have believed that? No, there were times I was just hoping to stay out of jail, right. you know, <laughs> when I was that, that young. Um, I really liked the idea that there could be a place where you wouldn't be bothered, um, uh, you know, for long periods of time so that you could think hard about stuff. Uh, one thing that I also wanted to ask you about, and if you don't want to talk about this, it's perfectly fine, but you mentioned that you were adopted at 15. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, um, uh, my mom died when I was uh, 11, and uh, my father was uh, gone by then, or, you know, long gone, and um, uh, I uh, went with an aunt and uncle, 
and uh, uh, so uh, from the time I was 15 on, I was with him. Okay, I see. Uh, I left home when I was uh, in senior year in high school, and so I ended up uh, having to work a lot of jobs to make enough money to go to college, Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I, I didn't, I couldn't explore a lot of things with leisure, um, but I can't say I regret any of it. Um, uh, you know, I was able to hold a class two vehicle license for a long time since I had to drive a truck and, um, uh, you know, it gave me a sense of resourcefulness. I think that I otherwise wouldn't have felt. And I always thought that if the philosophy gig didn't work out, I could happily work any number of jobs because I already had. Right. And, um, uh, so I just got lucky, um, landing on my feet, but, um, so, you know, when I was in my 20s, when uh, summer breaks were spent, uh, you know, I, I worked at a, a steel fabricating plant for a bit. I I worked uh, in a hatchery sexing day old chicks, actually. And then <laughs> and then at night after uh, the hatch day was over, I would load up the truck at 1030 at night and drive through the night to Virginia or Tennessee or someplace like that to deliver them to to uh, places that raise uh, chickens. Right. Did they say sexing? Sexing chicks, yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, chickens that are um, marketed to farmers to lay eggs are bred to have um, color patterns that are sex-linked okay. to make them easy to distinguish oh, from I males. See. So they come down the conveyor belt after they've been, uh, uh, they've chipped their way out of the, and they're on the brooder tray. And you can very quickly distinguish between males and females, depending on what the sex link trait was. But uh, the women that I worked with on the line were remarkably accurate compared to me. Um, and uh, the um, they make uh, distinguish between the two of them. And then uh, you know my job was basically to um, after I had uh, distinguished, I would you know load them all up and and drive them. Right. Okay, that's something I would put it was uh, anatomical. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Did you start the singing thing back then as well, the opera? Yeah, I mean, given that um, my family was very heavily influenced um, by uh, an Italian heritage, um, it was regarded as a kind of uh, macho thing for a young boy to sing. So you right. played sports, but you also sang and um, uh, so I liked doing it and I guess I had a nice enough voice and uh, when I got older I traded gardening for voice lessons with a good voice teacher not far from where I lived and uh, when I finished college I was actually making a choice between going into opera and going into philosophy and I considered law school as well. Right. What were the deliberations behind that choice? Well, it was a it was a really easier decision to make than I had anticipated because I realized that I didn't find uh, singing creative in the way that I wanted to. Um, I I liked performing, um, but uh, I felt like I was always interpreting somebody else's work, and it's very hard to do well. I think, um, and I think in general men get breaks in opera because the pool is smaller. Um, I would have felt more confident that I would have been successful if I was as good a baritone as most um, failed mezzo-sopranos are sopranos. But uh, I I was relatively confident that I would be successful. 
Um, but I just didn't feel like it was interesting enough to sustain for any long period of time. The final choice you ended up with, you started with classical? Yeah, I went to a relatively small undergraduate school and I uh, eventually went to uh, Cornell and uh, studied there. And who were some of the first big influences there? Uh, my, my supervisor was Dick Boyd right. and, uh, you know, sort of a well-known philosopher of science and he was just great, you know, he, he was very interested in philosophy, very enthusiastic about um, all sorts of philosophical questions, even though he was devoutly naturalistic, it didn't keep him from being really interested in foundational issues in other areas, he just liked um, the structure of arguments, and he, he was um, excited to be involved in conversations with people. Um, so it was the kind of enthusiasm and support that was really great to have as a, as a graduate student. And uh, Bob Stallnaker was on my okay. dissertation committee, Sidney Shoemaker, and uh, a psychology professor who was at Cornell at the time named Frank Kyle, who's now at Yale. Right. I know that you had a big interest in philosophy of science, but did that come early on? Um, it, it did. Um, I remember writing a really orally aggressive um, honors thesis at Bucknell that was on um, Einstein, Freud, and Marx, some, <laughs> some epistemological problems in the philosophy of science. Um, and uh, they were kind enough to let me explore my interest in all of those areas by using my interest in philosophy of science. Um, but the department itself was an unusual combination of uh, analytic philosophers and continental philosophers. Yeah. And so I didn't have a background in analytic philosophy that was very secure, you know, and I was uh, comfortable with people in continental social theory and um, had read a lot of that material, had done stuff on emotions in the thought of Sartre um, with Joe Fell when he was uh, uh, active at Bucknell. Uh, so really I needed to catch up a lot when I went to graduate school, right. uh, but Cornell was the right place for that. It was a place where there were no university-wide requirements, and so if you had taken psychology courses, they could count toward right. philosophy. Yeah. Um, I ended up doing all of the philosophy courses plus six um, courses in psychology while I was there. But early on, you know, the the philosophers I read were Quine and Putnam. I like right. I liked the early Putnam most of all. And, um, you know, I read as much as I could of Jerry Fodor's work, um, Hempel, uh, so the, the standard greats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you, by the way, hear about this definition of, uh, of Putnam? No. Or, or a Hillary, rather? No. Uh, one Hillary is the shortest amount of time you can hold a philosophical position. Uh. Oh, yeah. that position I had at Hillary's ago. <laughs> well, the, the, the period of Putnam I like lasted quite a few years, so, right. yeah. <laughs> So your PhD was on... Um, it was this kind of scientific defense of folk psychology. Oh, right. You yes. know, so it, it kind of included arguments that basically, um, among other things, involved um, the observation that uh, ordinary practices of belief attribution were reliable in science and patterns of deference and so on. And so there was uh, a kind of um, epistemic... Um, inconsistency in claiming uh, radical reduction since right. whatever those practices were, they would have to be at most smoothly reduced. Right. Um, we might actually just go into that because that's one of the 
okay, maybe the most uncharitable interpretation of your work ever is that people are stupid. Uh, but at the same time, you are defending folk psychology, and you even criticized Churchland for, for his notion of eliminating folk psychology. Right. So how do you hold on to those two at the same time? Well, one reason I liked the argument uh, from uh, scientific practice was that the patterns of belief attribution were actually tested under stress. So I thought that it wasn't enough to say, well, folk psychology works in ordinary contexts under ordinary stresses because, you know, maybe uh, your point intervals were really broad. Um, so uh, uh, I liked the theoretical stress kind of argument. And that, I think, is why I don't really think that people are stupid. When you, when you look at the literature on judgment and decision-making and you look at the systematic patterns of errors that people commit, it's usually under circumstances that are relatively complicated, um, at least to perform well on. Right, yes. And, uh, and if you sort of properly calibrate how much the human mind is capable of, uh, it's not all that bad in the end that people make certain kinds of errors if doing so prevents them from crowding out other important concerns. Right, because you are famous for pushing this point that scientists should be much more involved in policymaking and because of these biases we have and so forth. Uh, would you go so far as to call yourself a technocrat? Um, well, I have um, em embarrassingly technocratic tendencies. I can't <laughs> really explain why I'm so interested in policy, for example, but I do find policy pretty interesting, um, even though some of the philosophical issues I'm interested in are more rarefied. That's something I talked to many guests about before on this podcast as well, that, that at some point you sort of get this urge that, okay, it's my time to contribute to society as well, and, and not just do the things I find interesting, but, but trying to actually make a change in the world. Yeah, I, I don't think in my case it comes so much from that, because I don't feel like I've arrived in any sense, and it's you know my time to do something. But I, I do feel kind of like an urgency that I'm responding to, that I have the leisure now to explore. You know, I was probably more careful, as many people are, earlier on to focus on more narrow issues. But in part because Loyola pretty much lets you do what you want. As a faculty member, you can poke around in all sorts of disciplines as long as you're careful to not insult specialists in the field by mm -hmm. supposing that you can nip into their field and understand everything they're doing. Oh, that's great, because that also brings up psychology, which I'm also teaching history of psychology, and I've been pushing mm -hmm. the same point that you have been pushed a lot as well, that, that it should be seen as a science as serious as chemistry and physics. Yeah, and, and certainly um, in selected areas, they've achieved a certain kind of maturity um, uh, compared to other areas. And the areas that are less mature... Um, in psychology, maybe so because uh, the subject matter is complicated in ways that we don't yet have the methodologies uh, to explore. Would that include well-being research? Um, I think well-being research is complicated, but I think it's on more solid ground um, than, say, um, educational psychology, for instance, um, yeah. and some areas of counseling psychology. Um, some areas of counseling psychology, I think, I think are successful, even though they're aren't really very strong theories in those fields. Um, but uh, psychophysics was a field that was properly scientific by the turn of the century, and yet it, it, it relies almost entirely on uh, subjective first-person reports. Right, yeah. And so to the extent that 
uh, answering general social survey questions about your happiness is like dipping your toe in the stream of consciousness, those reports may be uh, reliable as well. Right. Okay, so there's one link that's still missing, which is always the, almost the worst part in this academic career thing. Uh, so the time between your PhD and getting a job. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, liked my, my dissertation committee, but I didn't like being a graduate student in a funny way, and, and so I really got through Cornell quickly. And um, even then, I spent enough time in psychology to start a research project in speech perception. So that's when I started doing experimental work on speech and on segmenting the speech stream and sort of worked at the acoustic phonetic level of speech. And I continue to do that as I search for a philosophy job. Um, and then I, when I did land a philosophy, a tenure track philosophy job at Loyola, it happened to house a really um, excellent uh, research center that did comparative work in hearing. And so uh, I was one of the speech people there right away, and so I could continue my work. So when I was doing speech perception research, and I focused mainly, as I said, on the acoustic uh, phonetic speech stream, um, I used this kind of amplitude modulated speech, which um, uh, it's a sort of technique for generating a whispery kind of speech that was developed to mimic the output of a cochlear implant. Oh, yeah. And uh, so the most recent experiments that I had done on the topic that I, I published back in 2005 um, were primarily designed to help practitioners develop training materials uh, for um, pediatric cochlear implant patients. Um, so uh, it would make a kind of whispery sound, and people would offer their... Um, their best guess about what word that was. Okay, now, yeah. you could take words in our lexicon and divide them into what are called easy words and hard words. Easy words uh, have high relative frequency in the language. They occur, they occur a lot across a whole bunch of genres. And hard words don't. Hard words are less frequent, and they have lots of similar-sounding neighbors. Um, uh, uh, easy words are words that have high frequency and few similar sounding neighbors so you don't have to hear them out from the noise as it were um, so I used that kind of database and generated um, amplitude modulated tokens of hundreds of these words that came from uh, an original database uh, in the speech research lab at Indiana um, and uh, ran them on uh, normal hearing subjects to see what normal hearing subjects were uh, most capable of, and they distinguished the, they identified um, uh, in both open set tasks and closed set tasks, closed set tasks, they're picking one out of, say, 10, yeah. and they know one of them is correct. Right. Um, and so really they're trying to match the whispering that they he <laughs> hear to what they see on the screen. Um, and an open set task is much more challenging. Uh, you're trying to just identify the word. Yeah. And uh, chance performance would be somewhere around 1 over 60,000, oh, right? Because you have about 60,000 items in your lexicon. Right. And these are just um, one-syllable words, so um, closer to ten or 15,000 probably. Right. Um, and there's a very robust effect that, you know, individuals are much uh, better able to identify easy words than hard words. So the biggest challenge for pediatric cochlear implant patients is to learn the first words so that they can construct a model of the lexicon that they're becoming familiar with. Oh, 
oh, right. uh, when you're talking. And it's important in those cases to not give them other challenges in right. addition to that. So you train them up on easy words first, and then they can get the so-called harder words. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I seem to remember that you... Um they did some experiments with uh, with monkeys, chimpanzees, I think. Well, what I what I, I when I was in uh, an undergraduate at Bucknell, they had a really admirable macaque colony, right? Um, and unusual at a small university in a in a place like Pennsylvania. But I used to do observations uh, for a master student who was doing a thesis on changes in dominant status of infants given changes in their parents, uh, their mother's dominant status. Oh, okay. So um, I did observations there. And then later on, some of the psychological work that I did was more theoretical. And it uh, so some of the stuff that came out in Psych Review was um, work on whether or not animals could understand uh, running speech. Yep. And, and so there were some efforts by uh, people who worked in the comparative field to try to debunk the speech as special view or the language as special view by exposing chimps or chinchilla or quail um, to segments of the speech stream and train them up so that they could do things that, that we thought only humans could do. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a long article arguing that um, most of these experiments have taken too many liberties in coaxing um, the animals in various ways or in the quail experiments, for example... Two of the quail out of the six that were used couldn't even learn the task. It took thousands of trials to train them up. Um, uh, you know, children acquire those um, without explicit training, uh, without requiring thousands of trials. You know, so there are all sorts of ecological considerations that uh, I raised. And uh, that was sort of the way that I applied whatever theoretical resources I had to a kind of practical problem that faced people who did animal research. A bit like neurophilia as well, that sort of these kinds of animal results are overhyped and right. they can do the same as us. And that kind of no, thing. every time somebody comes up with, you know, a dog that's able to chaser, you know, is able to find an item from an array of items that's only been named once or twice uh, to the uh, to the animal, um, but really a lot of those are memory tasks. They're not language yeah. tasks, yeah. and you know. So the same thing with speech was done with starlings, but starlings have unbelievable memories. Uh, among other things, they have to remember where things were that that they buried in leaves. Um, right, but yeah. but they have unbelievable memories, and uh, if you want the hypothesis to be specifically about uh, speech then you shouldn't use a task that draws on uh, memory as heavily as these do. Right. So does the hype come from a place of, sort of willful deception, or is it a self-delusion, or is it a money thing? I think it's a combination of factors that conspire, but without the complicity of the practitioners, really. I mean, I think, right. I think professional psychologists are not immune to the... Um, uh, attractions of the attention that it would get them um, to do this research. Uh, it should also be mentioned that it's incredibly difficult research to do. It's yeah. it's very time consuming. It's you know you get these incremental changes that you have to interpret and you have to be very careful about. Um, so you invest a lot of time if you're a comparative researcher, um, just you know treating the animals well and handling them well and so on. Um, but it's striking that when an animal 
uh, does acquire a skill of a certain sort that they've been trained up to acquire, um, it's immediately picked up all too quickly by the press without adequate interpretation or qualification. And I think it's in part because uh, I I said in the the one article that I published, you know... um, Everybody likes it when the circus comes to town. Yeah. You know, uh, they're, the animals are cute. We suspect they're smart. Here's some confirmation right. that they're clever. And uh, it allows people an assimilable model of themselves to an evolutionary continuum. Yeah. So they get the sense of understanding washing over them. Um, but the story of speech is a very complicated story, the evolutionary origin of speech. Um, and it's likely to involve many, many different factors that won't be settled just by looking at speech is- issues. You know, you'll end up looking at uh, separately at semantic issues. You'll look at pragmatic issues, syntactic issues, and so on. Yeah. Why did you find that interesting? There is something about uh, the hidden beauty of speech. You know, right. you you hear somebody's voice, and it has warmth, and it's got these phenomenological characteristics that are very interesting but then you uh you know you do some speech analysis on it and you see the acoustics of speech and there's a hidden structure that's elegant and it has to control for all sorts of messiness in the world you know when you listen to somebody they can say a sentence so differently from somebody else and yet you understand what both people are are saying and it you know reduces information so that you can do other things you're doing this incredibly quickly you're processing you know at least two and a half words per second and so the skill is really stunning and so it was in i think in part that and i felt like a lot of the experimental questions and speech perception came easily to me in a way that maybe other areas in psychology were more of a struggle Um, And even though I do sort of foundational philosophical work in judgment and decision-making, I don't find the same kind of ease or fluency, you know, thinking of experimental paradigms to test particular strategies. Yeah, that makes sense. I think think it was John Searle who said that I got bones and meat and there's a hole in my head and there are sound waves coming out (laughs) and you can understand me. That's what philosophy is all about, that being amazed by this thing that we take for granted all the time. Yeah, I mean, speech is really uh, amazing in exactly that respect, yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about is this notion of neurophilia, um, where I also completely agree. The whole phenomenon is kind of strange because it seems to have such a hold on the sort of public uh, imagination in some sense. Yeah. At the same time, as we do consider ourselves as a sort of spiritual beings, many of us, or not not me, but many others, <laughs> Roger. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so what do you think this fascination with, with anything sort of neuroscientific is? Yeah, I mean, I think the way, it, the way it's most abused, the uh, data in um, neuroscience, is in loose interpretations of brain scans of various sorts. Yeah. Um, and I think in a lot of those cases, there's this... Um, understandable desire to make a difficult topic tractable yeah. by hoping that uh, a certain capacity that you have uh, is represented by a bunch of flickering lights. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it has a hold on uh, the public in a way because people um, trust neuroscience. Uh, so it's not the report of psychological results. It's the report of reliable neuroscientists. 
and I assume that uh, neuroscientists might display the same kind of uh, chemicophilia, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, and you could follow the reductive pattern down. Yeah. <clears throat> You've also expressed concern that this might be exploited for political reasons, or, or as you put it, um, the public's neurophilia is worth studying in part because it might be exploited by public policy entrepreneurs attempting to shape cultural tastes and political convictions. Yeah, I mean, you oftentimes see uh, being hawked on websites that are uh, for political advisors, and uh, they propose to run subjects to see whether or not certain kinds of words associated with policies send up uh, neuroscientific red flags that people respond automatically to. What's nefarious about that isn't so much that it would be presented to the public in some way, but that it would be presented to the public as good science and that um, uh, it's exploited in its infancy by people who really are more about framing messages than about understanding the phenomena. Right, yeah, because we can't really. I right. I mean, it's it, they've gone well beyond the uh, ability of the field to really give clear explanations for what's going on. Mm -hmm. And what are your views when it comes to sort of the good old mind-brain question? I suppose you're a materialist as an atheist, but are you sort of a non-reductive materialist? Yeah, I mean that's certainly I've I've written on non-reductive materialism in a in a favorable way, um, but uh, you know I've never really um, uh, developed uh, a view that's independent of a lot of the um, more familiar versions of uh, non-reductive materialism, and I haven't visited that question recently, so I, I don't really know um, how firmly I would be committed to it, but the specific question I'm not sure about is whether um, whatever explanatory clarity uh, is missed in non-reductive explanations would be cleaned up by reductive ones, more reductive ones, or whether um, the fact that you'd miss important generalizations if you framed them reductively could be amended if you knew uh, enough about collateral biological events. Oh, yeah, I see. Well, we have talked a bit about things related to the empathy gap already, uh, but what is sort of the, the main thing you wanted to convey with that? Yeah, the, the main theme that I wanted to convey in the empathy gap was that um, there are a lot of people who are suffering needlessly uh, because of the inefficiencies of policy that are introduced by uh, difficulties in judgment and decision-making. Yep. Um, and there are more efficient solutions to a lot of those problems um, that if you learned how to correct some of the biases, um, you would be able to uh, improve policy uh, on that basis. So the idea is basically that we're not going to be able to reverse the biases by any of what I call the inside strategies. You can't tell people to concentrate or attend more closely. That gets them to reassert their errant strategy with all the more conviction. Right. Um, but there are outside strategies that you can use that are mostly policy solutions to problems that prevent people from being subject to the temptation in the first place. You know, so um, there are all sorts of uh, institutional settings in which people can make decisions um, that are um, more like jury settings, right, right, where you have more controlled circumstances, but also um, laws that are in place, like 
social security policies that protect against people's discounting the future. Right. right. So yeah. if you left it up to the individual, um, you know, the, there's the old uh, Italian adage that you know people spend the first half of their life abusing their body and the second half looking after it. Yeah. Right. And that's a, a discounting phenomenon. And uh, it's not that people are stupid that they don't save enough. The you know the the curve introduced by compounding is not intuitive to people, so it's not surprising that they undersave um, or that they try to. Uh, increase their subjective well-being by satisfying their present desires uh, perhaps more than they should or coming up with strategies that make them happy that aren't so costly. Um, that's a complicated problem. Policies like uh, Social Security remove the temptations from our hands and you either adapt to it uh, if you end up approving of it, you end up approving of it in part because you adapted to it, but also it might be something that you would have taken aboard if you were um, had it explained to you in clear enough terms. Yeah, you mentioned yesterday, you mentioned some examples of how incompetent uh, some of these House committees and so forth are. Uh, is it really that bad? Well, I don't know how a lot of the other House committees run, but the one that I focused on is the House Committee on Space, uh, Science, Space, and Technology. Um, and there, once you're familiar with the way the committee operates in making decisions about particular uh, House resolutions that come before it, uh, it's kind of worrisome because it's not independent of the representatives' interests in being employed after their terms are up, if they're not going to continue their terms or if they get voted out. Right. Um, there's lobbying pressure that they're subject to, right. there's campaign money that they're constantly uh, trying to acquire, and part of doing that is letting uh, lobbyists know that they're on their side, um, particular uh, uh, lobbyists of particular persuasions, and uh, they also have to court their own constituencies, yeah. and those constituencies... Um, not surprisingly, uh, because they were elected by them, uh, typically agree with those people's views, those representatives' views. Right. So, um, you know, you don't really get people voting on the merits of the science, and they're not even, even if they were so disposed, they're not in a position uh, to vote um, on the merits of the science because... None of them typically are scientific experts that are in the areas of things like ocean acidification or dangers of radiation or behavioral evidence that's associated with um, wasteful energy behavior. So when they hire consultants to address the House Committee, a lot of times those uh, consultants are very competent, but there's no requirement that the House members actually attend those uh, information sessions. So... Um, you find people voting along the party line, um, and very little uh, difference is made by uh, the presentation of scientific evidence, as far as you can tell, um, uh, not being in the meetings. Right. But that external pressure you talked about as well, so if more and more scientists are brought into these kinds of positions, brought into positions of power, do you see scientists being sort of subject to the same kind of pressure, and would they be better able to withstand that pressure, you think? Well, I think they might be better able to withstand the pressure for a couple of reasons. One is that if the reason that they want to be involved has to do with 
notoriety, um, that sometimes comes out in ways that get you ticked off of a list for such a position. Oh, right. um, and, uh, you know, if you wanted it for grants, um, behavior that was that self-absorbed uh, might make you recognized as an unreliable uh, reviewer right. as well. Right. So given that they have academic positions, uh, you know, now there are people who I think have genuine issues in wanting to improve uh, human welfare, and they're prepared to give up very cushy academic jobs to go to Washington to work for uh, any number of years. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're rightly motivated, but um, I don't think that they are as easily corrupted because as administrators, their term can be longer than the term of a House member. It doesn't depend on a vote. So the advantage of that is that they're kind of insulated from those lobbying influences and uh, those um, other sorts of financial interests. And what about you yourself? Would you be interested in getting more into politics? It would depend on what I'd have to do in order to do it. Not in, into politics, but into policy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but I like my life, uh, you know, and so I, I'm, you know, uh, happy uh, living with my wife and children where I am. And, you know, um, uh, I wouldn't want to have to make great changes for that. So. Right. Speaking of which, are you a workaholic or do you manage to actually set off time to do other things? No, I mean, if anything, I have to carve out time to do work uh, because I, you know, like spending time with the kids and I like fishing and I like, you know, working on the house and stuff like that. Right. Um, so. Right. It's interesting. You sort of have this sort of macho streak through your life, oh. in a sense, <laughs> with the boxing and, and opera also being macho. And you know, it, it, it turns out that it's, it's like a Hemingway kind of thing. It's much cheaper <laughs> to catch fish and eat them. Uh, and it's and it's it's much cheaper to do your own work on the house than to hire somebody. So right. I think that's how it began. But also, <laughs> it's kind of like platonic recollection in a way because I did a lot of this work when I was a kid with my grandfather. Right. And so when I got older, uh, I started working on the house, and I realized, hey, I, I know how to do that. I remember how to do that. I had, I had welded tire racks when I worked at the junkyard, and you know, so uh, I I wasn't uh, daunted by doing it, and, and and came to enjoy it. You know, so. right. So it's your flow state. It is. It is. Yeah, it's a it's a dangerous state to be in because you you get possessed by it, and then you know if you want to move a wall or something, you can't. You know, you can't stop looking at the wall and trying to make it really straight. And right. you know, when you're just like drywalling, you know, you're shining a light on the wall at 3 a.m. to make sure you get it just right. And Speaking of flow state, what are your feelings about teaching? I've I've taught at a number of different places now. Before I was at Loyola, I taught at Virginia Tech. I taught uh, as a Mellon postdoc at Bryn Mawr. So very different kinds of students. And um, I've liked students wherever I've gone. So I, I like teaching undergraduates. I you know, taught a sort of undergraduate graduate course at University of Chicago uh, back in 2005, and that was a gas. And you know, um, uh, I teach uh, judgment decision-making at Loyola chiefly. Right. Um, but I've taught philosophy of science and philosophy of mind and metaphysics. and Right. One of the first things that came up when I was searching for your name was, of course, this horrible thing of rate my professor. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of the comments that is recurring there is that bring a dictionary when you go to J.D.'s talks. Yeah, and that's <laughs> something that's very hard to control in class. Um, uh, I always try um, to 
put things in two or three different ways. Uh, and that way I don't have to control for the one time when I use a word that students might not immediately recognize. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've tried to shake that for a really long time. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, but you know, uh, uh, I'm probably not as, as, uh, fluent in whatever language they're most comfortable with uh, as I should be. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about should. So you're not setting the, 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 the bar intentionally high or something. I don't think so. I mean, in a way, um, you know, the reason why I don't put more ef effort into getting rid of uh, certain turns of phrase or or self-monitoring so much during class that I, um, you know, always delete those for those you know words that they don't understand um, is that I really think there are some words that they should know. Yeah. And you know. Um, by the time you're in college, I don't think that there should be any shame in having to look something up. You know, if they were learning biology, they'd have to look up homologous pair. Um, and so if there's a vocabulary that you're introducing because it captures an idea very well, mm -hmm. um, it may, because it's a psychology course, have a meaning in the vernacular, um, but it also may have a technical meaning that they've correctly diagnosed you know, um, is different from the one they're familiar with. Right, right, right. If I remember your CV correctly, you got involved with, with Pi Beta Kappa early on. Uh, oh, I guess, you know, when you um, go through college, uh, I don't know what the standards are that cause the induction, but, yeah, I was uh, uh, graduated and got Phi Beta Kappa at the same time, yeah. Right. So uh, when I was an undergraduate. Right. That's me like a skull and bones kind of thing? Um, no, actually, um, it hasn't been a part of my career except that I got uh, to my surprise I got this um, uh, Phi Beta Kappa award where you present a series yep. of lectures the Romanel um, professorship and uh, it involves doing three lectures and so I think I'm, I'll probably um, do three lectures on uh, one on epistemology um, and maybe look ahead at the future of epistemology um, a second one on uh the feeling of understanding and explanation. So I, I've done work in the philosophy of science where I argue that one of the reasons that people accept explanations is uh, because of the sense of understanding that washes over them when they feel they have a good explanation. Right, yeah. And um, I tie a lot of that work to work in psychology on cognitive fluency. Um, and because I think it's a fluency effect and you find it in Copernicus, you find it, you know, no matter how far back you go in the history of, of science, um, where people have a coherent, uh, uh, nominally coherent view of the world and some fact that uh, they've observed fits uh, and they have this uh, sense of understanding. Well, oftentimes yeah. the observation is an errant observation or it uh, emerges from some bizarre metaphysics that they happen to have. Um, and sometimes on very poor evidence, they um, make a firm conclusion on this sense of understanding, and it turns out to be roughly the right hunch, and science right. takes off. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, this is part of a larger project that I'm working on that basically argues that um, the history of science is radically epistemically contingent. And so at certain points in the history of science, people got the right theoretical hunch, and um, uh, Dick Boyd has made similar arguments about, uh, particularly about uh, the Newtonian era, right. um, but I think a lot of uh, what the Newtonians got right, and this is where it 
becomes less credible to people, but I fully believe, came from uh, later alchemy. Oh, right. And yeah. so the corpuscular view is preceded by um, very robust uh, Islamic traditions that were recovered by people in uh, Western Europe and um, were developed by uh, people like uh, Sennert and, you know, a number of other, um, both French and German, uh, corpuscularists. Um, but a lot of the corpuscularism was already in, in Islamic and other variants of, of alchemy. Right, yeah. Because Newton uh, also did alchemy, right? Yes, he did. He, he uh, did a lot of alchemy in the, in the occult. Um, and in the early 1600s and late 1500s, um, there's very little that had to be done to make Boyle's law work. Uh, so they had the sphericity and the hardness of uh, corpuscles. There were a few other factors that, uh, that they had to add, and it was embedded in this elaborate metaphysics that was um, uh, poorly conceived. But uh, it provided a ready way for uh, Boyle and his teachers. Um, so uh, von Helmont was preceded Boyle, and Boyle knew his work, and you know, von Helmont thought that if somebody defecated on your doorstep, which apparently may have been a problem back then, I don't know, <laughs> um, you could punish them um, uh, burning their anus, as he put it, um, <laughs> by slapping a hot iron to the feces. And he said, by the mechanism of dorsal magnetism, punish the impudent. Um, you know, there's... That mechanism of dorsal magnetism is known only to uh, von Helmont. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yet, von Helmont had the corpuscularism that Boyle took over right. um, and developed his work that Newton then drew on. And not, incidentally, Locke. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there are story, similar stories you can tell throughout the history of science where, for whatever reason... Um, but sometimes due to geographic or historical contingency, people had the right hunch. The feeling of fluency by itself doesn't establish the validity of the view, but if it happens to be right, it happens to be a reliable indicator mm -hmm. uh, that your hypothesis is at, le is at least approximately true. Right, right, right. So if you want a global explanation for why science succeeded relatively rapidly in the West... It may be because of that corpuscular hunch and what could be done with it. Does that imply that we should uh, basically nurture any kind of crazy idea that is out there just as a sort of a compass for the, for the good ideas? Or like no, a I gene think pool? Or? you should let them duke it out. Yeah. I don't think you should necessarily nurture it. But I do think that it has the consequence that people like Bacon were not nearly as important uh, in principle uh, as much as he was important as thematic figure. Right. He represented this kind of new experimental science, um, but uh, um, that kind of ability to test hypotheses diversely and, you know, there are all sorts of canons that people associate, canons of experimentation people associate with with uh, Bacon, but, um, you know, concomitant variation and other sorts of, of ones that are associated with Mill can be found quite easily in Ibn Sina in the Islamic period where, you know, uh, he and a number of others 
tried to determine the um, constipation-curing um, abilities of scamony, which is an extract of the morning glory. <laughs> and the way he sets it out, he sets it out in an experimental design. Right. Um, and so it preceded Bacon by many hundreds of years, and the Islamic science seldom gets its due in that respect. And those were also sort of the good old days where you didn't have a sharp distinction between philosophy and psychology and science. And all right, that. right. Is that something we should go back to, you think, or do we need to keep those distinctions? No, I, I, um, you know, I respect the work that individuals do in fields, but I don't really respect the distinctions between the fields. And as a matter of fact, you know, some of the earliest uh, corpuscularists in the Islamic tradition um, like Al-Kindi, um, used experimental design to to um, support psychological hypotheses about how vision worked. Right, right. So. so when it comes to the role of distribution between psychology and philosophy, um, it was actually a referee who once wrote, referee, the dreaded referee number two, uh, said that you're trying to answer philosophical questions with empirical research. This is preposterous. Uh, so is there a limit to how far psychology should go? Is there a place where philosophy has to take over? Or should they just merge together entirely? Yeah, I think I think eventually, um, at least a lot of the disciplines that I work in, I think should just merge yep. um, uh, with psychology. And that's in part because there are lots of psychologists who think really deeply and hard about foundational issues right. that philosophers have a real facility for. And, uh, you know, so and, and there are psychologists like Lance Ripps, who writes on personal identity and uh, the persistence of items over time right. um, and cites philosophical literature when he does it. And there are a, a wide range of psychologists who do that. And so there may not be in a lot of the fields that I work in um, distinctive contributions made by uh, philosophers. So just as a procedural matter, um, it might be nice if. The plaques on the wall uh, didn't prevent people from collaborating right. as much as they do now. Yeah, you sound like you were a disciplined sort of, sort of a Protestant work ethic almost. Uh, were you? A lot of the jobs that I had, um, uh, you know, I landed on my feet and it, and have been unbelievably lucky. I mean, it's uh, I couldn't imagine that things would have turned out this well. So you know, uh, to answer your among your first questions. Uh, no, I couldn't have imagined that I would end up in a position like this. Right. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, um, uh, I didn't much mind a lot of that work, uh, but I much prefer this kind of work. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So you say luck, but at some point did you get a diehard dedicated to 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 make this academic thing work, or or did you sort of stumble into things uh, uh, well prepared, of course, but still. I think I I it emerged from a plan of sorts, but it never felt like work. You know, right. I mean the the <laughs> things that I fell into more or less. You know, there were certain points where I was deciding whether or not to bother going out on the job market. Um, uh, and so I was deciding whether to get a different job. And so, you know, at the time, my wife and I got a map out and put pins in different, like, I think maybe six different cities in the country. Right. And uh, my wife at the time was an attorney, and she and I decided which cities we'd like to live in, you know. And it was at that time that I actually lucked out and got the job at Loyola, and we've been in Chicago ever since, you know. Right. Um, so those were the sorts of times where uh, I felt like I lucked out. Um, but, 
you know, I felt like I've been pretty lucky my whole career. I've been doing the stuff that I was really interested in. I never felt like I was working really hard. I still don't feel like I'm working really hard. <laughs> um, you know, so that's what makes you feel lucky. Right, yeah. So to the people going through that now, do you have any advice to uh, people who are trying to get into the whole rap race? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, it always feels presumptuous of me to say, you know, keep working hard, keep trying to publish, you know, because I know how contingent it can be. And now I've been on both sides of the hiring right. table. And, and, you know, there are so many good people who are so profoundly decent who either aren't going to find a job or aren't going to find a job that treats them well. Uh, you know, I always encourage people to really try to recognize the things that they enjoy doing that are also outside of philosophy. Right. You know, yes. so my plan when we put the pins on different parts of the map was that my wife would get a job in any of those cities um, because she was an attorney and she'd be able to. And I would just get a job driving a truck, right. uh, preferably locally so that, you know, we could have a family and and it would be easier to have a family that way. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had a class two vehicle license and I kept it. Uh, just in case the philosophy thing didn't work out. It, I didn't face that with any great fear or anything uh, because I knew that I had done it before and I could be happy doing it and I might have even changed careers uh, and gone on to do something else like framing or something. I, I like construction. and So I didn't have any great fear. I mainly felt bad for dragging my wife yeah. to a, a different city, but... Um, you know, she always seemed to find a place and enjoy herself uh, wherever we went. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So what drives you? My flow activity doesn't discriminate between sort of um, classes of behaviors. So I really like carpentry. I really like fishing. And I really like hard material that's challenging. So uh, if I don't do the latter, if I don't work on, on hard issues... I find myself thinking about them sometimes um, uh, when I shouldn't be, right. you know, uh, when I should be utterly focused on something else, like, you know, whether I'm going to hit the nail on the head sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's very satisfying to be able to uh, hole up. And I've always worked late at night and uh, I work throughout the day as well. But when at night you're alone yeah. and there's something very satisfying about uh, doing that and yep. really feeling like you're wrestling a problem to the ground and understanding Absolutely, it. Yeah. Um, and so it's intoxicating in the way that any flow activity is. You know, you, you um, have an urge to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember just working on different projects when my children were little and I'd be up late at night and give them a middle of the night feeding and it was a convergence of all the sorts of factors that you feel really satisfied with you know so I'd be working really hard and then you'd give them a feeding and you could play with them and everything and then they'd fall asleep and you could either go back to work or right. go to sleep and that kind of freedom and autonomy that uh, an academic job gives you can't be found in other places and sure. so um, uh, but I think if you, if as a job applicant, if you're on the job market and you feel very nervous about stuff, which even the s people with the stoutest character can feel nervous under those circumstances, um, and worried and ruminative, it's really important, I think, to focus on the things that you really enjoy doing that are outside of philosophy as well, because 
if you have to face those prospects, you want to have not just thought about it, but had some practical experience with it so you really don't feel threatened by the idea that uh, right. you might not get your choice job. Right, 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 exactly. So, so on that background, this question that we got at the conference uh, today as well, if you would have to rank yourself from 1 to 10, how satisfied you are with your life, are you, oh, where were you? I gave myself a 9. Right, yeah. yeah. And one, one reason is that I was trying to imagine how my life might be better, and yeah. I couldn't imagine how my life could be better very easily. Um, some people would say that's just a failure of imagination. <laughs> um, but if that's a failure of imagination... I'm happy to adapt to that feature of uh, my life because, uh, you know, there are very few um, joys that can be taken away from me then. Right, yes. And I'm very happy that you came on the podcast and our station is coming up. So thanks a lot for being on. Thanks very much. Thanks to Dee and thanks to you as well for listening through this episode until the end. I hope you found it as interesting and inspiring as I did. Now I stopped the interview just minutes before we had to leave the train and quenched for thirst we ended up grabbing some beers and keep on talking until my last train back was long gone. So I ended up staying in the shittiest hotel room in Amsterdam, again listening to the fresh recording, once again telling myself how happy I am that I started this podcast despite these inconveniences. Even if nobody else gets anything out of this, it certainly holds intrinsic value for me. That said, I do hope that I'm not alone, and if you did like it, please help me spread the word to anyone else you think might find this interesting. And come back on Monday in two weeks for another episode of Such That Cast. (laughs) 